the National Archives podcast series, Getting Away with Murder, Medieval Criminals and the Law. Thank you all for coming. Um, the title is up on the board, but I wanted to talk today about medieval criminals, um, the criminal law, and the, the millions and millions of documents in TNA that relate to this. Um, as a brief outline, what I'm going to try and cover today is um, a general overview of the development of the medieval criminal law and of the problems of actually um, approaching the records as a researcher. I want to talk a little bit about the records themselves, which divide into sort of two categories during the 13th and 14th century, the curia, curia regis roles and the heir, and in the 14th and 15th centuries, the quorum regis roles and other sources. And then I want to look at an in-depth case study which relates to um, the legal proceedings around the murder of Henry Howard, Esquire, in 1446. Just a brief overview then of the common law itself. Common law is the customary law of the realm as amended by statutes and by precedents of the courts. It is distinguished from Roman or civil law and from canon law. So the system of common law developed in England from the later 12th century and the central courts, which have been settled at Westminster since the 13th century, have millions of surviving records. It's actually a little bit difficult to tell precisely how many. Um, there's a lot of unsorted material still um, in um, our off-site facility in, um, in the Cheshire countryside, but the millions and millions of records we do have at queue enough to keep, keep on with. In the Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-Norman periods, England was still governed by unwritten and variable custom rather than a uniform law. Trials were taken by oath. If you could find enough upstanding local men to swear you were innocent of a crime, you were therefore innocent. You could also be tried by ordeal or by battle, and not before a jury, as we now know it. Process was oral and not written down, and varied by county or region. Only after the conquest was there a growing recognition of the paramount position of royal justice among these many conflicting jurisdictions. This is an image from the Hampshire era in 1249. It's the only known sketch of a trial by battle, which you might be able to see in the top right-hand corner. It also has an illustration of um, someone swinging on a gallows, but um, it's, as I say, the only known sketch of trial by battle. Between roughly 1166 and 1216, under the dynamic kingship of the first three Angevin kings, Henry II, Richard I, and John, a major reorganization of the English legal system took place. This reorganization was characterized by royal courts, which were superior to local and feudal jurisdictions, by judges appointed by the king, by written records of pleas and judgment, and by the increasing use of juries to decide disputes over matters of fact in law. All these things we now think absolutely standard as part of the common law. These um, came in, um, as I say, roughly um, in the second half of the 12th century and a little bit later. So during this period, we saw the first appearances of the Court of Common Pleas, which dealt with non-criminal matters such as debt or contract. The appearance of the Court of King's Bench, which is the superior criminal court. And you also saw um, the heirs, which are justices traveling around the country, hearing um, both criminal and non-criminal cases. And the, the very basic sketch there sort of shows how the king, increasingly seen as the fount of all justice, the king's bench justices, who went out around the country into heirs, to jail delivery, and to size. But the Court of Common Pleas and the Court of King's Bench, from their existence, lasted from 
roughly 1200 right through to 1875 with the bigger organization of the legal system. So they're very, very long-lived and important institutions. The system, however, did not remain static and changes continued. The heirs fell into disuse in the first half of the 14th century and were increasingly replaced um, both by general and specific oil and termine commissions. And oil and termine means to hear and to determine. But these dealt with, with local, local problems. We also saw increasing powers of the commissions of the peace, the local justices of the peace. Now, no one, I think, even the most optimistic of moves, uh, moods would claim that the medieval criminal justice system was without its problems. Now, the first I wanted to cover was impartiality. Up to the later 14th century, much of the criminal justice system looks, to modernise at least, fair. The judging was done in the main by professional royal judges, and the royal official in the county, the sheriff, did most of the administration. This wasn't to say it was free of corruption. Um, the, if you were rich enough or powerful enough, you could um, retain a royal justice, um, and that wasn't actually legal, made legal to the later 14th century. There were also lots of exceptions to this rule. But it looks theoretically fair. However, the later 14th century and the 15th century saw the partial surrender of much of the criminal justice system to the landowners in the counties as justices of the peace, as commissioners of oil and termine, and of jail delivery. Now, as local landowners were both the perpetrators and the victims of a large portion of crimes, most crimes against property, this obviously placed a substantial strain on the, on the landowner's neutrality if they're both judges and victims or perpetrators. And this is especially true when many of the jurors were likely to be their neighbours or their tenants and therefore were susceptible to their pressure. To sort of illustrate this again, I just a very basic sketch, but you can see the, um, the top-down justice from the king to the king's bench and then down to these local commissions. But I also wanted to show the, the power that the local landowners had as they were increasingly appointed to these commissions alongside the royal justices. And as an illustration here, um, this example is from Suffolk in 1500 and is actually um, uh, an indictment. It's taken up Bungay in Suffolk um, for two justices of the peace, Sir John Wingfield and Sir John Audley. Now, the jurors, this is a presenting jury, so they're making an allegation here. The jurors say that the same Sir John Audley um, assaulted Philip Booth, Esquire, and badly wounded him on the 27th of October, 1500. Therefore, to all intents and purposes, the jury is saying that the judge is guilty of assault. Now, I would say that isn't necessarily the most impartial uh, and, and, and um, you don't really see justice being done here. Um, this is a relatively unusual case, but I went through this particular file in detail and I found four or five instances out of maybe a hundred where, to my, you know, not untrained eye, but by, to just at a glance, I could see four or five instances where the jurors or the judges, there was something wrong. And I would say that was quite a high percentage. Problem number two in the medieval criminal justice system is efficiency. The common law processes were so long and so expensive that a huge percentage of cases never reached a verdict. In two months in 1414, King's Bench, which was then travelling around the country, issued processes against 1,600 individuals in just two counties, Staffordshire and Shropshire. Just 500 of these actually ever made it into court, and just one out of 1,600 reached a conviction. Now, some made um, uh, pleas of pardon or made a fine, so there was, um, there was um, 
a resolution in some of these cases. But I would still say that 1 out of 1600 is not a terribly good ratio. The delay in expense of the common law processes is one reason for the popularity of the new type of equity courts from the 15th century, primarily the Court of Chancery, which offered quick and cheap remedies to common law legal problems. Of course, these equity courts in turn became bywords for lengthy and expensive litigation. Jarndyce and Jarndyce, as I'm sure you know, is Charles Dickens' fictional case from Bleak House, which was infamous for its um, expense and longevity. The Tudor monarchs also oversaw a further expansion in alternatives to the common law courts, such as the courts of Star Chamber and of requests. The third problem is that there are ways around the criminal justice system in the Middle Ages that simply do not exist now. The Crown reserved the right to pardon any criminal for any matter as and when it chose. Pardons are to be found in the patent rolls and the supplementary patent rolls in our record series C66 and C67, but, and there are actually an awful lot there but the king does not need any reason other than his own mood to do so. It's also the benefit of clergy, as uh, clergymen couldn't be tried in the royal courts. If you could recite um, what was known as the neck verse, you were therefore excluded from the royal criminal justice system. There was also the right of sanctuary. Um, a criminal could escape to a parish church where he could spend 40 days there without fear of arrest, and this was actually an unlimited length of time in certain major ecclesiastical houses, such as Durham. And you do occasionally find um, communities of criminals hiding out from the royal officials. And this is very, very rarely broken by the Crown. My second set of problem pages are actually approaching the common law records as a researcher. Problem one is, I think, finding the right record. There are a vast number of common law records. Many, none are fully searchable on TNA's online catalogue. Only a few have any modern paper finding aid, and only some have any kind of contemporary finding aid. It's not always easy finding what you're looking for. Secondly, as I'm sure you know, with a brief exception of the interregnum, almost all formal legal records are in Latin until 1733. They were usually written in high, highly abbreviated and increasingly archaic script. Finding the right type of information is also an issue. Many legal actions even today do not reach a formal conclusion. And this was more frequently the case before the 20th century. So while you might find the start of a case, an indictment or a writ initiating proceedings, there is no guarantee of an actual pleading or any real detail and certainly no guarantee of a verdict. Quite rare to see this, um, which is the Latin abbreviation for suspendato or let the defendant be hanged. Lastly, it's also the sort of information you might find there. The criminal records are solely interested in fact there is no interest, for instance, in motive, um, which has to be teased out of other records where they exist. Um, and certainly the case study uh, I was going to discuss later, you'll see that while it's only concerned with the fact and there's no consideration of, of motive, it, the, the criminal records are not interested in that at this time. There is rarely any written or physical e um, evidence presented in criminal trials, um, and certainly they don't survive, but it's not even noted in the pleadings. The records can actually seem quite dry because of this sometimes. Anyway, that's the end of, of the problems, and I wanted to talk now a little bit about the records themselves. The most important records for, for the criminal law are those of the Court of King's Bench, the court that had unlimited criminal jurisdiction throughout England, including supervision of all inferior criminal courts. That's kept in our record series, KB. There are other criminal jurisdictions which included the itinerant justices, including those in air, in assize, in oil and terminate, jail delivery. And up to 1528, those records are under the record code JUST. 
and from the mid-16th century, they're under the Assize Record Code. There are also a number of special um, localities with special criminal jurisdictions, uh, particularly those of the Platinates of Lancaster, Cheshire, and Durham. I'm not going to talk in any great detail about these records today because um, they, to some extent they're, they're separate from this and I wanted to concentrate on the central criminal courts. I wanted very briefly to talk about the writ. And the whole basis of the common law was the returnable writ, whereby the king issued a writ ordering official to take an action and return the writ itself to a specified royal court at a specified time with a report on the back known as an endorsement to confirm that the official had carried out the instruction or to provide a reason why he had not. There are many types of writ, and the development of the new ones continued up to about 1833, when a single type of writ was introduced. Writs have survived in, in their millions um, at the National Archives and account for a high proportion of the pre-1875 common law record series. That's slightly more true for the Court of, Kings, of Common Pleas than it is for King's Bench. But there is an example of one of the King's Bench writ files at the back of the room. Talk about the criminal records in basically covering the 13th century. Um, you have what are known as the Curia Regis rolls, which are in KB 26. These contain the earliest air rolls, which I'll come back to in a second, up to about 1199, and the early plea rolls of the Court of King's Bench up to about 1272. Many of these records have actually been printed. That's not often I'm going to say that today. The second major record series is Just One, which has the records of the justices in air, the size of Oyer and Terminate, and of the peace. And many of the early records in this series have been printed by the Selden Society. There should be brief notes of, of all of these record series on the handout. To concentrate a little bit on justices in air, during the later 12th and 13th century, justices from the central courts at Westminster were sent to hold courts for all types of pleas in all the counties of England, except at this time the liberties of Durham and Chester. The counties were grouped into circuits, each of which was covered by a small group of justices in air. Air justices had, among other, thin, <coughs> excuse me, among other things, to hear all the Crown pleas, which are criminal offences or those against the King's proprietary rights as a landlord, in a county which had arisen since the last air in it. It was regarded as customary for heirs to visit the shires at seven-year intervals, which is not exactly terribly frequent as far as the... Um, the, the locals were concerned, and actually the intervals were in practice often much more varied. General heirs were suspended in 1294, and there were isolated attempts at a comeback in the early 14th century, particularly 1329 to 1330, and you still see the occasional ones being summoned up to about 1374. Air rolls before 1278 can be divided into two main sections, civil pleas and crown pleas. A civil plea is an action between a subject and a subject, so Smith against Jones, but it's, and it's often of a minor criminal nature. The victim is suing for damages, as in cash, and not for the defendant to be imprisoned or to be hanged. Whereas a crown plea tends to be the serious criminal offences, um, whereby the punishment for the guilty would often be hanging or mutilation, or they might include actions in cases where the crime takes place against the crown as a landlord. So if I broke into Windsor Castle and stole a horse, I would end up in the crown side um, of, the, of the pleadings. This is an example of um, an air roll from Shropshire in 1256. It's also at the back of the room if you want to have a closer look later. 
This particular entry is, as always, brief and highly abbreviated, um, but it does contain quite a lot of information. And in translation, it says, Walter of Wootenhall appeals Thomas of Williston of wounding and of breaching the king's peace. Thomas comes and denies wounding Walter and everything else and puts himself upon the country for good or for ill, as in he submits himself to trial by jury. The jurors say that Thomas did hit Walter over the head with a large stick, but only because Walter assaulted him and not for any other reason. So the, the jurors' verdict is that Thomas is to be imprisoned for assault because he did hit Walter with a stick, but Walter is to be imprisoned um, for a false appeal because he hasn't given all the, all the information. And indeed, it says at the end, because this is what, actually what the Crown is primarily interested in, Thomas came and made a fine of half a mark to avoid imprisonment. So therefore, that's half a mark to the Crown. Briefly to talk about jail delivery roles. Um, jail delivery sessions, which were held to try all the prisoners held in a particular jail to await trial, were mainly held in airs and usually have their own separate sections in the air rolls from 1279. But where they're held outside as, and especially for the later period, they're kept in the record series Just Three. And this is an example from Just Three, and is from a jail delivery taken for uh, Colchester Castle, Norwich Castle, and Bury St Edmunds, so an East Anglian um, commission, held before Humphrey Duke of Gloucester, the King's uncle, uh, the Royal Justice William Babington, and various others in 1427. This particular example uh, focused on the exploits of John Retherby of Wymondham in Norfolk, who was by this stage a probably rather notorious horse thief, who over the course of three separate raids was accused of stealing 11 horses worth nearly £20. He denied the charge and went before the jury, but the jury declared that he was uh, guilty as charged and therefore sentenced him to hanging. And you might be able to see right in the bottom corner the abbreviation um, mark for suspendato or to be hanged. To move on to the records of the Court of King's Bench itself, this was recognisable by Henry III's majority in the 1220s, had unlimited criminal jurisdiction throughout England, including supervision of all inferior criminal courts. It was also the criminal court of first instance for Middlesex, so if a crime happened in Middlesex, you would go straight into the Court of King's Bench. Elsewhere, you would, be, um, you would have a local hearing and then the records, um, and then the case might move into King's Bench. Though, by use of the fictitious trespass called the Bill of Middlesex, it was accessible to those um, in other areas of the country who wished to use it in the first instance. And that simply meant that if a crime happened in York, you claimed it happened in, in Middlesex, it went straight into King's Bench. And only then do you say, actually, it did really happen in York. But because it's already there in King's Bench, the proceedings go on rather quicker. This is um, a contemporary illustration of the Court of King's Bench at work. You can see the judges um, who are sitting at the back in their red, red robes. You can see the clerks actually writing up the cases in the court, um, and those are the records that actually survive. Um, you can see the defendant. You may be able to make out he's uh, in fetters, because he is the defendant. And you can see the lawyers who are actually doing the talking on either side of him. At the front, you have a queue of people in irons waiting to be heard. But this took place in Westminster Hall, at which point there would also have been the Court of uh, Common Pleas, the Exchequer of Pleas, and various other hearings that would have been a loud, noisy, and quite confusing scene. So, 
There are about 17 record series for King's Bench that are wholly or partially medieval, and I'm not going to talk about all 17. The most informative for tracing criminals are KB9, which are the ancient indictments, KB26, which I've already discussed, um, which the Curia Regis rolls up to 1272, and their replacements, the KB27 Quran Reggie rolls, KB29, which are the controlment rolls, and KB145, which are recorder files, and these should all be on your handout. An indictment is an accusation made by um, a jury of 12 or more laymen sworn to inquire on the king's behalf and recorded before a court of record. Juries were juries represented local communities, and in the case of the grand jury, which was anywhere between 12 and 23 men, usually represented the whole county. Accusations were made by the jurors either directly from the knowledge, either directly from their own knowledge, these are known as presentments, or from their, in, for, from their endorsement of a private bill of complaint submitted to them as a bill of error or true bill. The indictment files cover a wide range of criminal activity, um, from minor theft to murder. Much of the language used is formulaic, but you can actually see considerable detail in some cases. Here just uh, is an illustration of a writ ordering a copy of indictment into King's Bench and then a copy of the indictment. To, to illustrate the details um, that you can sometimes get, this was an inquisition taken at Cannington in Somerset on the 30th of June 1462 for John Welderton, who was the king's coroner in the county. And it's known as a, a view of the body, so it's actually probably not quite literally, but standing over a murder victim's body. The victim is, in this case, William Plush. And the jurors, again, presented by jurors, say that on the 29th of June, so the day before this inquisition, um, the oddly named Richard Blaffelang and Joan, wife of Leonard, Leonard Tilly, with cudgels and daggers assaulted William Plush out of their premeditated malice, wounded and maltreated him, and Richard, with a dagger held in his right hand, struck and wounded him. The Latin says something like literally under the right-hand side of the chest, so I'm imagining it's something gruesome up under the ribcage. Um, and there inflicted a fatal wound whereof he died, whereof William died afterwards. And immediately after Richard had mortally wounded William, Joan violently drew William's own dagger from its sheath and holding it in her right hand, struck, him, struck William over the head, inflicting another fatal wound whereof William would have died had he not already died of the wound that Richard had previously inflicted on him, whereby Richard and Joan murdered the said William. You can see there is quite a lot of detail there. There are no finding aids to KB9. They are arranged by regnal year and then by term. Within each bundle, the indictments are in a rather random arrangement, with indictments from the same county scattered throughout the files, though the writ which ordered the copy of the indictment into King's Bench and a copy of the Inquisition itself are usually sewn together. To move on to the Coram Reggie rolls in KB27, these were so called from the fiction that they were held before the king in person, um, though this was actually rarely true. Indeed, the only um, story about a later medieval king sitting uh, actually in here uh, on King's Bench, he made so many bad legal decisions that the judges um, gently encouraged him not to come back again. <laughs> KB27s are a record of the formal stages in the cases, not actually of what was said in court. They're not for word-for-word word word transcripts. And indeed, law French was the primary language of the court, unintelligible to just about everybody, except the lawyers. Um, but the roles are always in Latin. 
and as with the air rolls, they're divided into two sections, the police section, Smith against Jones, and the crown section, which is Rex against Smith and Jones. There are some sort of contemporary finding aids to uh, the KB-27s. On the police side, there are docket rolls from about 1390 to 1509 with some gaps, which provide the only shortcut to actually trawling through the civil police sections of the rolls. They provide um, a county, a plaintiff, a defendant, and a cross-reference to the Rochelle, the page, on the suit of the relevant KB-27. And they're kept in the record series IND1, and this is an example. You might be able to make out each line is a, is a, is a description of each case, um, but they do give a cross-reference to where you can actually find the pleadings. On the Crown side, uh, I'm not going to talk in any great depth about the controlment roles, um, but they can serve as a mean of, means of reference to cases on the Crown side. They were annual memoranda roles kept by the Clerk of the Crown in the King's Bench to enable him to record the processes of the Crown cases in which he was concerned from term to term. It's very much a working document, but the advantage is they're rather smaller in volume and each KB29 covers a year as opposed to a single term for each plea roll in KB27. You can see they're a working document, they are scribbled, they are highly abbreviated, um, and when they've run out of space they write incredibly small. They're not a great deal of fun to use, but as I say, they can help in quickening the process. Just to illustrate the type of cases you might get in a KB27, on the plea side, this is an example from uh, 1402, and um, it's a plea in Kent, and Henry Emery is attached, as arrested, to respond to William Parker of Wingham of a plea that with force and arms, um, so it makes it a criminal action, along with two other men, Henry insulted, assaulted, beat up uh, William Parker, uh, made him despair of his life, so we might now say GBH or assault. But the victim doesn't want the defendant imprisoned or executed or the Crown really involved at all. What the defendant is after is £40 in damages. It's a very substantial sum, though if found guilty, um, it would be the Crown that decided the level of the compensation. But he's not interested in other punishments for the defendant, and though the Crown reserved the right to imprison the man if, he, if they wanted. Example of the Crown side, uh, this is um, the Crown side dealt with the most serious criminal matters. This example is in the same role in 1402, but it's a treason trial um, in a series of, of trials that saw the execution of 14 men, most of them clergymen, for spreading seditious rumours that the former king, Richard II, who had been dead for two years, was still alive, which understandably irked the usurping king, Henry IV, who was almost sent responsible for Richard II's murder. So you can see why it was um, irking him. In this particular case, um, this is a, a friar, Henry Forster, who was alleged to have been celebrating hearing the news that Richard II was alive. When cross-examined by the king in person, you can see that it really did irk the king, um, the friar admitted to being privy to a plot to raise a rebellion in the king's name. The king therefore condemned him to be hung, drawn, beheaded, and then cut into quarters and presumably sent round the country as, a, um, as a, an illustration of how bad uh, it was to be a traitor. There are um, extant sheriff's accounts where they claim expenses for carrying bits of traitors around the country. The last type of records I was going to discuss briefly are the recorder files in KB145. 
Now, these are annual files. from They run from roughly 1324 to about 1688 um, and contain records of proceedings in inferior courts. All sorts of things such as general heirs, sizes, jail delivery, oil and terminate, common pleas, chancery common law side and local liberty courts, especially those of boroughs, which were returned into King's Bench after the issue of writs which exercised the court's superior jurisdiction over them. The files actually thus preserve many records of proceedings in courts, both central and local, whose original roles and files have not survived, and also of some local courts which are not courts of record. Now, they're not the easiest thing in the world to use. There's an example at the back, and you can see it's not easy to handle. Um, but they do actually have occasionally some real gems in them, and the case that I'm about to move on to does have an example of this. So, how in practice might you put all these together? Um, this is a case I came across a few years ago. I've been trying to write an article on for about that length of time. Um, it relates to some rather dubious events in Suffolk in the middle of the 15th century. Now, I'm going to follow the records through in the order in which they were created, which is not the order I found them. Um, obviously, I found them almost exactly the wrong way round, which didn't really help. But to put them into a logical, into a logical um, sequence. Basic context of this is that Henry Howard, Esquire, um, was, as far as can be confirmed, a peace-abiding, middle-aged gentleman living quietly and comfortably on his southern Suffolk estates, particularly at Stoke by Nayland and Boxstead, which is nearby. He was, however, rather well-connected, um, being a kinsman of the Mowbray Duke of Norfolk and of the De Vere Earl of Oxford, and Henry Howard's nephew, John Howard, would rather later become the first Duke, or the first Howard Duke of Norfolk. The other major player in this event um, was John Lord Scroop of Masham in Yorkshire, who was a somewhat impoverished peer and who had already had a rather long and turbulent career by the date of these events in 1446. Although impoverished, he did have estates in southern Suffolk near to State by Nayland, over which there was a dispute with other local gentlemen, though not as far as I can tell Henry Howard. Certainly there's no obvious reason for what um, I'm about to describe what, what happened. Um, it may indeed have been a brawl in the street. Um, I can't find a good motive for it. But this is a picture of um, the, as I say, the pretty state, the Suffolk village of Stoke by Nayland um, and the church and then the violence that erupted. first document here um, is an indictment um, on Saturday after Corpus Christi, the 24th year of the reign of Henry VI or as we might put it, 18th of June, 1446. It's held before John Duke of Norfolk, Henry Howard's distant kinsman, um, and many other justices of the peace. And the jurors allege that uh, John Gelder, John Leedale, and John Plumtree, all of Masham in Yorkshire, um, aided and abetted by John Lord Scrope of Masham, John Lord Scrope, his son, and 11 other named men, Armed with swords, bows and arrows, on the 11th of June, so it's a, bit, a week earlier, um, at the house of John Halstead Smith in Thorrington Street, insulted, assaulted and criminally killed and murdered Henry Howard Esquire. Note, no discussion of motive, no discussion of why, it's simply the facts, as this is what the jury is saying, this is what happened. About a month later, there's a second indictment before a different set of justices of the peace, and in where, where the jurors say that three different men, though it later turns out they are connected, they are all, they are all the sort of connected to the same uh, John Lord Scrape, that three different men with force and arms, swords, bows and arrows, criminally killed and murdered Henry Howard. 
So those are the indictments in KB9. The next process is the start of um, pleadings actually in King's Bench itself. The KB9s were obviously taken at the local level. This has now gone into King's Bench. And the controlment rules note the start of process against these men. Then you actually see the first full write-up of these proceedings in the KB27. Now this, and you can see the bulk, the bulk of this actually, um, the first, the first two-thirds of the pleading um, is a rehearsal of the two previous indictments, both of them, despite the fact they're indicting different men. It was a rehearsal of both of them. And the proceedings then go on to say that just under a month after this is all written up, all the accused men indicted in both um, indictments appeared in court and showed letters of pardon that they've been granted by the king, ordering the suspension of all process against them and the record goes on to say that the defendants released sine die without day or that no further action would be taken against them. So this is all very formulaic, very standard. But the big question is, why were they pardoned? Now, unusually, perhaps, there's rather more to this um, and the records for once show it. And this is one of a sequence of letters from the king himself to the justices in his court. Now, first letter, King Henry VI acknowledges that two of John Lord Scrope's servants murdered Henry Howard. And I quote from the king says, We have understood by supplication of our right trusty and well-beloved John Lord Scrope that where on Trinity evening uh, last past, two of Scrope's servants, one called um, uh, Waller, the other Kendall, mischievously slew at stake by Nayland in Suffolk one Henry Howard squire unto Scrope's great heaviness and displeasure. So, Scrope acknowledges two of his men have killed Henry Howard. But, in a second letter, the king gives his reasons for the stopping of the judicial process. And he says that John Duke of Norfolk um, basically packed the jury with all of his retainers. Now, this is a little bit difficult because John Duke of Norfolk is the local bigwig and virtually everybody in southern Suffolk and, um, is one of his men. Therefore, it's kind of inevitable that um, it would be slightly unfair. But this tampered with jury indicted, full piteously and untruly, men, some then being of good record in our city of York, so if they're in York, they can't commit murder in Suffolk, some being out of England, uh, some men being sick, foul lepers, some being dead long before, and some named such persons as no such is. So they're basically saying that all these men that have been indicted, and there were a big string of them in the original indictments, can't possibly have done the crime. And he, uh, the king goes on to say that those that did the deed are unindicted, as it is said. So, to conclude from this, Scrope has acknowledged that two of his men killed um, Henry Howard, and those two men were among those indicted. But because Scrope has managed to allege that John Duke of Norfolk has messed up the indictment process, the, uh, the process is stopped against absolutely everybody. I think there's two things that come out of this. One is you can see how much influence or the importance the Crown actually has in this process, um, that if the King says stop, it stops. Um, the second thing actually is that this is all tied into high politics as well. John Duke of Norfolk is out of favour at court and his local rival, the Duke of Suffolk, is the person manipulating the puppet Henry VI strings. So there is politics as well. But 
it does, I think, illustrate the judicial process at its worst at this time and how much the Crown can be involved um, and stop what was obviously um, you know, a valid case. And to add insult to injury, um, this is the, the last document um, relating to this case, which is the formal pardon on the patent rolls, um, which pardons all of the named Yorkshire, all the, the named uh, Masham men, including the two men that Scrapers acknowledged killed Henry Howard. Um, they having been impeached of malice by Mary, widow of Henry Howard Esquire, of having murdered her late husband, the king desiring their good name to be had in repute. Now, I, I actually that's quite ironic. But I hope that shows how the, the records all come together. You have the original indictment, then into the plea rolls in the KB27, follow-ups, sometimes in KB145, some, sometimes in something like C66, but the process through. To conclude, the um, question is, and you perfectly legitimate question, is why bother with the legal records? They are voluminous, there are many finding aids, they're hard to read. I would say they're a really rich source of information about rural lords, gentry and their tenants, slightly less so of the towns, but that's there. you can also find quite a lot of urban proceedings in there as well. And the prevalence of crime in the pre-industrial society makes finding individuals, even very low on the social scale, a real possibility. To quote the um, recent retired and will be much missed David Crook, the scale of the dated and contextualized references to individuals that legal records contain dwarf any other source before the advent of parish registers, even the tax records. So I think you can find an awful lot of people and an awful lot of information in the legal records. And thank you for listening. This event was recorded live on June the 5th, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by James Ross and Sean Cunningham. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.